Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. It's a pleasure to have with me today, Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Hi, Dave. Hi, Nabil. Good to be with you. Dr. Dave Chatterjee is a tenured professor in the Management Information Systems Department at the University of Georgia. He is also a visiting scholar at Duke University, affiliated with the Master of Engineering in Cybersecurity program, and an accomplished scholar and technology thought leader. Dave's interests and expertise lie in the various facets of information technology management, from technology sense making to implementation and change management, data governance, internal controls, information security, and performance measurement. Recently, he published a book titled Cybersecurity Readiness, a Holistic and High Performance Approach. So Dave, why don't we get started? Maybe give us a little background on how you got started with security. Sure, Nabil. Once again, thank you for inviting me. So cybersecurity research and teaching has been an ongoing endeavor for almost a decade now. I'm concerned about the catastrophic consequences of ignoring cyber threats or paying half-hearted attention or being underprepared. I firmly believe, in fact, I'm very passionate about raising the overall level of cybersecurity awareness. And I'm talking about going beyond training and producing cybersecurity professionals, because I believe that cybersecurity is everyone's business. When an organization gets hacked, the more vulnerable population are likely those who are not cybersecurity professionals. So... I wanted to reach out to as broad sections of the community as possible. So in my own way, I have been trying to enhance awareness, enhance cybersecurity education. I have a learning module on information security and risk management in an executive level class that I teach on information technology and strategy. I also have a similar module on information security and risk management in an undergraduate class on information systems leadership. And as you mentioned in your intro, I'm associated with Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering, and I'm looking forward to teaching in their Master's of Engineering program. The class I'll be teaching is titled Cybersecurity Program Development Operations and Analysis. Awesome. That's great. And, you know, it's really our pleasure to have you and learn from you. So you mentioned in your book, the Cybersecurity Readiness Scorecard. Can you share a little bit about the scorecard and also what are some of the key factors you see that impact the readiness? Absolutely. So in my book titled Cybersecurity Readiness, a Holistic and High Performance Approach, I talk about 17 cybersecurity readiness success factors, and they are associated with three high-performance information security culture traits of commitment, preparedness, and discipline. Now, I don't want to rattle off 17 success factors, but I'll talk about a few. And I'll emphasize on the ones which focus on governance, because I believe we talk a lot about the technical aspect. So that's well known. 
So from a governance standpoint, one of the critical success factors is how hands-on, how actively engaged is top management? What's the level of top management commitment to enhance cyber awareness in the organization? Related to that, as I said earlier, cybersecurity readiness is everyone's business. It's not a technical problem. It's a business issue. It's a strategic competency. Given that, I believe there needs to be an organizational-wide effort to create and sustain a, what I call a we-are-in-it-together culture. To be able to build that culture and sustain it, organizations need to develop what is referred to as emotional capital. And that, again, you know, one can just get into an elaborate detail. I don't want to get into that right now. So as I mentioned, hands-on top management, we-are-in-it-together culture. Another important success factor is joint ownership and accountability. It's not enough to expect the CISO function and the team to take ownership and be responsible for all that is cyber in the organization. Every unit has to take responsibility, has to be involved. And that includes the senior most folks running those different units. And then there is another factor, which is the empowerment of the chief information security officer. That's a tough job. In many ways, it's one of those thankless jobs where you're not talked about if everything is going smooth, but if something happens, your head rolls. I'm a huge believer that if you hire a CISO, you want to make every effort to make sure they can be successful. And how do you do that? You want to make the CISO function as independent as possible. Try to ensure that the CISO has direct reporting opportunities, whether at the level of the CEO, at the president's level, or reports to an external group such as the audit committee. Then I, would, I also want to talk about another very important factor, which is continuous monitoring, intelligence gathering. This is not a new thing. You know, there are tons and tons of guidance out there on how to monitor against threats. And there are lots of tools out there. But here is the problem. Not all organizations do a great job of properly logging, reviewing, and acting on the intelligence received. And that's where having robust processes, good governance mechanisms, that's where it makes the difference. Finally, training. There are tons of training outfits out there. An organization can take what I call check the box approach and hire an outfit and do the expected training, whether it's every six months or once a year. But I believe they need to go beyond that. Training needs to be customized. It needs to be personalized. It needs to be continuous. It should be interactive, gamified. There are lots of aspects that make for an effective training program. And last but not the least, there has to be a continuous assessment as to what people are learning. How is the training enhancing their level of awareness? So what I'm getting at, Nabil, it's not like the factors I have identified, they're all brand new. They overlap with the existing frameworks out there. But the message that I want to send across through my book and through my talks and interviews is we need to be very proactive. We need to be very substantive. And we need to be very genuine about our desire to shore up our defenses. And when I say we, I'm talking to the senior leadership because they really hold the key to this puzzle. They drive the security culture in the organization. So they have a very important role to play. They cannot afford to outsource this important function. They must provide oversight. 
they must be actively engaged. So I have two follow-up questions to that, actually. The first one regarding the role of the CISO and having that be really an independent function with proper ownership and visibility into the executive roles. You know, ultimately, it seems like the work of the CISO is also never ending, right? They're on 24-7 and they have to deal with crisis one after the other on a daily basis. How do you foresee that role evolving over time so that it's not a crisis-based role anymore, but it's something that allows the CISO to be more proactive? Great question. And you're exactly right. CISOs are constantly trying to, as they say, douse fires and constantly having to react to situations that happen. Like a, a friend CISO I was talking to the other day, he said that in my job, one of the essential traits is to be extremely adaptable. And we should be able to handle change because things are happening and changing all the time. To your question, the way I see the CISO function, there has to be a central organization, a central team providing oversight. But that has to be complemented by liaisons or representatives who are embedded in the various organizational units. And they serve as the CISO expert within that group. They serve as folks who understand the business of the group and also understand the security implications so they can help the leadership of that group take quick decisions. Because what we don't want is a hierarchical structure, is a bureaucracy that slows down security decision making. It needs to be prompt, preferably it needs to be proactive. Talking about proactiveness, there should be a couple of people from the CISO team whose sole focus should be to scan the environment, should be to monitor the developments, the innovations in the hacking world, in the world of security defenses, so they can constantly bring back new knowledge, new insights, and help the CISO team within the organization learn, and also spread that awareness throughout the organization. So Dave, the follow-up question I have as well around the training piece is, you know, often we talk to organizations about doing proactive training, interactive training, gamified training, and so on. But often the message from the leadership team, especially on the development side is, we don't have time, right? Or who's going to pay for my developer's time? I'm already understaffed. You know, I have to build certain features. The training doesn't really give me any additional features or anything like that. What would your recommendation be for those people on how to change the mindset on training, especially security training? Because it's often a really big friction point between security groups and development groups when they want to really do deeper dive engaging training and they get pushback from dev leaders. Exactly right. That's exactly what I have been hearing. And I've been talking about that issue as well, that I'm actually surprised that we haven't been able to integrate these two separate teams. Because as you know, their goals are kind of conflicting. The development teams are incentivized to get the product out as quickly as possible. Security team, on the other hand, wants to be the quality control folks, making sure that the product is robust, secure before it goes out. So the development folks see the security folks as an impediment to their, the goals by which they are measured. What needs to happen, these goals needs to be integrated. They need to be aligned. I don't believe they should be separate teams. They should be in one team working in cohesion. And there has to be, once again, top management getting the message out that we want this kind of an approach. We will support this approach. We will provide the necessary budget. 
you know, when you were talking about success factors, another success factor I mentioned is about sustained security budget. We need to be able to offer a certain level of assistance over a prolonged period of time and not have spikes in the budget. Like, yeah, this year I did well, so I have a little more money for security. Oh, this particular year, sorry, we have to cut security. That's not the way you approach security if you consider it to be a strategic capability, if you consider it to be a strategic competency. So once again, the message has to come strongly from the top that this is important, this is critical. We want our security team, we want our development team to be at the top of their game and to enable that we want to provide every possible training or anything else that's needed to help them get there. So in that same vein of not training, but maybe switching to more of education and, and current engineering and computer science curriculums, where do you see the biggest areas for improvement in the existing curriculums um, that are being taught at universities today? So, Nabil, I have had a chance to review several information security curriculums, both in programs that are offered in business schools, as well as programs offered in engineering schools. I believe they are doing a great job. They are addressing the important aspects of cybersecurity education. One can always do better. But as a reminder to people who get to design the curriculum, couple of things to keep in mind, and I'm sure they do, but just as a reminder, we have to take a very holistic and integrative approach. For instance, in the Duke's cybersecurity program that is offered by the engineering school, they have brought in people, subject matter experts, to talk about the human factor. They have brought me in to talk about governance. They did not turn it into a program that just teaches technical skills. And I believe that is the trend. There is another aspect to cybersecurity education that I feel strongly about or I'm very passionate about. And that is, like I said earlier, when these students graduate and they go on to join the workforce, they take on different roles. Yes, the ones who are graduating from the specialized cybersecurity program, they will take on the cybersecurity professional roles. But who are the most vulnerable in the organization? Are the security folks most vulnerable or are the non-security folks most vulnerable? I believe that answer is a no-brainer. It is the non-security folks who are most vulnerable. So what are we doing about training those non-security folks? To address that, I believe there should be a foundational class on cyber as part of the core curriculum. Just like we try to instill data literacy, ethics through all our courses, I believe cybersecurity deserves the same level of attention. For sure. And in terms of curriculum, you know, the challenge I see too is often security in general isn't necessarily treated the same way as other engineering aspects are treated, let's say from a failure perspective, right? Engineers have special dedicated courses where they learn about, you know, why a bridge collapsed and what was wrong with that specific design so that when they're designing something, they never make that mistake. Like that's ingrained into their minds as part of the normal engineering curriculum. How come we don't have something similar from a software engineering or a computer science perspective? So if I understood your question correctly, when you are being taught different skills and when you are being given the opportunity to build, you're going to make mistakes and then you learn through mistakes. Failures happen. Now, can we afford to make those kinds of mistakes in life settings? Maybe not. But then there are ways to address that by having an excellent training process. So when they start building for real defenses, they don't make those mistakes. 
But I think it's very important to fail because you fail generally when you are trying to go beyond the suggested specifications, when you're trying to create something out of the box that hasn't been tried or tested earlier. So I think it's an important mindset and skill to have. And as you know, many organizations such as Facebook, they reward failures. And when they say they reward failures, they're rewarding efforts to be innovative. Because if people are scared to try something new, lest something happens and then their jobs are at stake, they would stop innovating. And can you imagine in the world of cybersecurity, when the hackers are innovating away, you know, every couple of hours, probably something new is coming up. What happens to the defense teams if they are not, if they don't have the same mindset? Well, whether it's in the software engineering aspect of things or in the hardcore engineering aspect of things, the importance of stimulating, supporting innovation is absolutely key. Awesome. Well, I do want to kind of switch gears a little bit because you, especially given the fact that you mentioned about the human factor that impacts security and technical cybersecurity, you know, you are an educator, which means you are really good at communicating things to people who may have never heard about certain topics or may have no background in certain areas. And you need to make these concepts easily accessible and digestible for people. My question for you is now, how do we make security simple enough so that it now becomes accessible to the general population? Because ultimately, security is something everyone needs to be aware of. And ultimately, your weakest link is all that's needed for some sort of a compromise. So how can we make sure that the general population can understand security concepts better? Another great question, Nobel. First and foremost, we have to stop talking in terms of acronyms that will go over the head of somebody who's not very familiar with this domain. We have to make security education more mainstream. We have to engage in security talk in as non-technical, in as business, in as pragmatic a manner as possible. Again, it might sound like I'm trying to promote my book, but that's what I have strived to do when I've written the book. I wanted it to be read by everybody. Somebody should be able to pick it up and skim through a couple of chapters and learn about how these breaches happened. What were the consequences? How could it have been avoided? What role could have been played by folks who are not in the business of protecting the organization, but who get compromised? And there are ways of sharing that. I've used anecdotes, I've used stories to share these incidents, because that's how you are likely to connect with the masses. Talking about storytelling, talking about using simple lingo. I'm also very, very big on the role that media, entertainment media can play in popularizing cybersecurity education, whether it's through movies, whether it's through television series, through Broadway shows, the producers, the people who are like writing the scripts, they can find ways of instilling cybersecurity hygiene, cybersecurity discipline in the audience. And finally, hopefully you will agree that cybersecurity awareness and education has to begin much, much earlier. Kids, three, four, five-year-old kids are on the internet doing stuff. They need to be made aware of what are the do's and don'ts and what are the consequences. So we literally need to start from that age group and slowly, slowly advance the level of awareness as they also grow up. So cybersecurity education has to begin at, say, level zero when it's a kindergarten or grade one. 
So that's the way I, I look at cybersecurity. And please do not make it a technical issue or the technical folks own it, own it. The computer science people own it. The engineering people own it. Nobody owns it. We are all part of this phenomenon. We can be victims of this phenomenon. So let's do something about it. So I'm going to, in that same vein, kind of focus on a very specific thing that I've been thinking about, but I don't necessarily have an answer. So someone way smarter than myself, like you, can maybe give me some guidance here. You and I are both from a similar background. We both come from, you know, South Asian countries where, shockingly, cell phone data connectivity and internet connectivity, along with just, you know, cheap smartphones being available to people, there are a lot of areas, especially that were very rural, that did not have, let's say, people have access to banks, because they lived in a community where there may not have been a bank that's easily accessible, or have the ability for people and small businesses to perform transactions electronically. Now they have that ability to do that with different types of cash applications or even certain ways of transferring money using systems that are completely text message and SMS based. Now, these are people who maybe have little to no education, but they are making a living and running a business. And all of a sudden they have access to commerce in a way that they can't even fathom or understand how it works, but they know it works. They expect it to work and it's part of their livelihood. So for people who are uneducated, but are making a living using technology and are heavily dependent on that technology being secure for their livelihood and day-to-day -day income, what type of advice would you have for countries that are trying to secure those people? Nabil, once again, I appreciate the question. And by the way, you're being too humble. I think you're an outstanding professional. It's an honor to be talking to you this morning. So you bring up a very important question. It is true that these devices are available to people who are not formally educated. Mark my words, I use the words formally educated. You know, my experience has been people who are, we can speak call illiterate, but who earn a living, they have great practical sense. And we have to play to those senses. They understand very well what are the things to do to protect their money, their livelihood. Once again, that's where the education and training has to happen at a peer-to-peer -peer level. Literally, people have to be sent there, you know, who are trained in the respective areas and who can relate to and connect with this, let's say, a particular village speaking a particular language. And this particular person, let's call this person a cyber evangelist, he or she trains a few of those folks who become the power trainers for the rest. And this training has to be very matter of fact, simple discussions, little tips here and there, walk them through the steps they take to do the business, show them the potential points of vulnerability and what they should be doing or what they should not be doing. Believe me, I have great faith in the ability of the so-called illiterates to pick up on practical knowledge, practical insights. And you know, when your day-to-day -day living is at stake, you learn a lot faster. You have great motivation to learn. And so I have no concern whatsoever about the assimilation aspect of it. It's just a matter of recognizing the need and providing the resources, providing the necessary infrastructure, and the rest will just happen. It will have a cascading effect.
Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And true, like you cannot discount the practical skills that a lot of these people have, given the fact that they're making a living without any formal education. And and you're absolutely right. They definitely learn much faster and they are much more adaptable and flexible than a lot of people who do have a formal education in many cases. So Dave, you know, there's a lot of discussion today around the fact that there's a lack of talent for the cybersecurity industry. So what are you and your colleagues doing to encourage people to go into cybersecurity as a career, given this particular talent shortage? And also, do you have any advice for security leaders that are trying to hire recent grads? What are some things to look out for and maybe areas where they should expand and broaden how they are trying to identify candidates that will be successful in those roles? So, uh, Nabil, as you know, there is a tremendous shortage of cybersecurity talent the world over. We are talking about in the millions. Cybersecurity jobs are very high paying, and that message is out. Universities have started programs. They could be certificates. They could be degrees in cyber. So the pace of educating future cyber professionals has picked up. It's gathering steam. As I mentioned to you, I'll be teaching in Duke Cybersecurity Program in spring. That's a great program. They're bringing in talents from industry to provide students a very practical, a pragmatic experience on cyber. And I'm sure that's the case with many, many other programs. As far as the executives go, when you are hiring professionals, I'll again go back to my original theme. Make sure the person you're hiring, yes, if you're hiring for a cybersecurity job, the person must have the relevant technical skills, no doubt. But also make sure that the person has been exposed to other aspects of security. So the person is not frustrated when he or she's on the job and is doing their part, but still finds breaches happening and wondering why did it happen despite all the things we did? What did we miss? So in a holistic program, let's say if they are referencing my work or somebody else's work, and if people are presented with, say, 17 success factors, of which, say, five or six focus on the technical aspect, the rest are on the softer side, governance, good processes, then there will be a realization amongst these cyber professionals that, yes, we did our part, but despite that, things didn't work out because there are other things that also have to be done well. And you know what's the advantage of a holistic training? We enhance the future potential of these cyber professionals. They can move on in the organization from holding technical positions to holding managerial positions and go right on to become the CISO of the organization. The other day, I was reading an article where the CISO of Hewlett Packard, if I remember correctly, she was quoted as saying that the real need is in people who have both the business and the technical skills. They understand what they are trying to secure. They understand how they are trying to secure, and they understand the balance between security and convenience. That's a very, very tricky aspect. In trying to secure everything to the utmost level, you can shut down the business operation. So where do you draw the line? The security professional also needs to have an element of business savvy, an element of management savvy. So those are the things that recruiters must tap into when they're hiring. Because again, nothing against technical education is critical, but the harder skills, in my humble opinion, are easier to teach than the softer skills. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense. So Dave, before wrapping up, we always like to get to know people at a personal level as well. So maybe you can share with us a little bit of things you like to do outside of work, maybe some hobbies. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I am a huge tennis buff. 
I enjoyed mentoring my kids as they pursue tennis in their schooling years. In fact, my son was a highly ranked junior tennis player and he played in the competitive circuit. I traveled everywhere around the country with him. I enjoyed being with the tennis coaches and learning how you train and nurture talent. So I like to play tennis. I like to play a lot of racket sports. I like to watch a lot of tennis. I've run a couple of half marathons. Hopefully someday I'll run a full. But you know what I'm most passionate about? I'm most passionate about mentoring people, helping them realize their potential. That gives me maximum pleasure. I've enjoyed playing that role when my kids were young. Now we are empty nesters. I always reach out and make myself available to anybody who's trying to be his or her very best. And if there's anything that I can do to help them along, it's truly an honor and a pleasure. That's great to hear. And, you know, speaking of tennis, growing up, I have some, I have a very interesting story uh, because my parents put me in tennis classes to learn how to play tennis. And, you know, I would think I mentioned to you earlier that I lived in Calcutta for a part of my life. So are you familiar with uh, Leander Pays? Yes. Very much so. <laughs> I would be surprised if you said you were not. But I used to get training by uh, Leander Pays's brother at their club in Calcutta. And I had the pleasure of meeting him after he won the bronze medal. Him and I believe it was Pupati who, who won the bronze medal for the tennis doubles at the Olympics after which they came to visit and I had the pleasure of meeting him. And actually, that might be the only time I got to meet an Olympian that actually had their medal with them to show everybody. Wow. So a very fond memory of my childhood from uh, when you bring up tennis. That's one of the memories that come to mind. That is indeed special. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And I hope one day I can maybe have the honor of sitting in in one of your classes and auditing them and learning from you. But until then, thank you. I hope to meet you sometime in person soon. Thank you very much, Nobel, for the opportunity. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.